coming up. There's no need for red-hot focus. Hell, there's other people. The life and thought of Jean-Paul Sartre. Philosopher, novelist, playwright, political activist. I personally think that Jean-Paul's masterwork is an allegory of man's search for commitment. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't. It is. No, it isn't. All right. As soon as settle this, we'll ask him. Humans are condemned to be free, said Sartre. Condemned? Jean-Paul, your famous trilogy, Ruse Our Liberty, isn't an allegory of man's search for commitment. Me. Told you so. Who did he have in mind when Sartre said hell is really other people? Oh, don't ask. He's in one of his bleeding moods. Our guest is Thomas Flynn from Emory University. Being a nothingness. The age of reason. No exit. The life and thought of Jean-Paul Sartre. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. That's where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 years. 40 cool years, eventful years. John, today we're asking about the life and thought of Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre was one of my favorites when I was an undergraduate, Ken. Well, he was a good philosopher. He's a great philosopher, highly influential philosopher, too. His views dominated French thought for a long, long time. But, you know, John, I have to admit, I'm not really sure that his philosophy actually hangs together all that well in the end. I guess you must not fully appreciate the depth and coherence of Sartre's philosophy. It's a beautiful, if somewhat hard to penetrate, system. Yeah, hard to penetrate. Uh, let's take one of his main ideas, for example. I'm going to show you it just doesn't work. The idea of radical freedom and his claim that we're condemned to be free. I just don't know about that. Idea. Ah, that's one of the best ideas Sartre ever had. Oh, come on. Well, look, why don't we start by having you explain it then on favorable terms before I hammer at it? Well, I will if I choose to. <laughs> <laughs> well, take your decision to come in and do philosophy talk this morning. Rather than roll over and go back to sleep. Well, that was inevitable. I, I mean, if I had uh, gone back to sleep like I wanted instead of coming to the studio, you guys would have killed me. I couldn't have done that. Well, I'll admit that there are lots of things involved that you couldn't do anything about, no matter how hard you tried. You couldn't change the past. You couldn't go back and make it the case that we don't have a show today. You couldn't go change the distance between your home and the studio so you could sleep a little longer. These things have to do with what Sartre called the facticity of the in itself. The facticity of it in itself. Now, that's a fancy turn of phrase, but what's your point? The facticity of the in itself doesn't ultimately determine what you yourself decide at the moment of decision in the here and now. Only you can do that. You're in bed trying to decide whether to get up or sleep in. You can't rely on God or nature or your wife or anything else to make the decision for you. Only you can decide. Indeed, you must decide. Oh, you're forgetting about that irritating alarm clock that keeps ringing there, John. Well, even the alarm clock can't decide for you. You could push the snooze button and roll over and go back to sleep. You are what Sartre called a for-itself, Ken, a consciousness. You are not an in-itself like a rock. 
And that's what Sartre meant when he said, you are condemned to be free. But you know, there's something else that's different between me and a rock. I agreed to be here this morning. And you know what? I'm the kind of person, I, I live up to my my promises. That's why you guys like and trust me, I think. It's part of my nature to keep my promises, and you know it. Well, you're wrong. What you couldn't do is both sleep and fulfill your promise. But you could sleep in and thereby break your promise. Your promise is part of the facticity of the for itself, part of history. But in the moment of choice, your decision whether to uphold it or not is entirely open. There is nothing in the world that can force you one way or another. You have to decide for yourself. No, you're, you're, you're wrong. You're not getting it. Look, I'm not the kind of person who just ignores his obligations. That's not what I am, and I don't want to be that kind of person either, John. Ken, you're trying to escape from freedom by turning your choices over to your so-called nature, but you can't do it. Oh, come on. So-called nature? What do you mean, so-called nature? Ah, you have no nature. What? Oh, come on. Everything has a nature. The rocks, the trees, people do. Everything has a nature. Not consciousnesses. Not human consciousnesses. Not for itself, like you and me. We have no essential, pre-given nature that fixes in advance who we are and what we do. To the extent that we have natures at all, our natures are determined by nothing but our own actions and decisions. As Sartre said... Existence precedes essence. Existence precedes essence. Okay, but look, even if I grant, I'm going to grant you that I could have slept in this morning. I could have done that. I ought not to have done it. Look, I made a promise, and I can't escape. I'm going to use a Sartrean phrase now. I can't escape the facticity of my, of my promise, can I? It's binding on me. Yes, you can, just by choosing not to honor it. No, but that would be wrong. Then it would just be objectively wrong. Objective values. Posh. <laughs> there are no objective values that fix the nature of right and wrong, at least according to Sartre. It's all up to us. The appeal to objective values is just one more way of trying to escape from freedom. Yeah, but see, this is where it all starts to fall apart. Sartre himself was a member of the French Resistance, a committed member. He fought Nazism tooth and nail. Come on, could he really have truly uh, dared to risk it all to fight this evil if he really didn't think there was any objective facts about what he ought to do? Just because there are no objective values, no values fixed by God or some eternal realm of something or other, it doesn't follow that human beings don't or shouldn't value things. Ultimately, we choose our values. They are not imposed upon us. And once chosen, they really are our values. Well, you know, this is the puzzling part. But, you know, let's look at some of the things that Sartre himself valued. To do that, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shukan Kamatari, to explore some of his life and times beyond philosophy. She files this report. It's 1940 and Jean-Paul Sartre is a prisoner of war. He had served in the French army, but was captured and held by German troops for nine months. After his release, Sartre moved back to Paris. Over the next three years, he helped start an underground socialist group, published his book, Being in Nothingness, and wrote multiple plays, including No Exit, a story about the afterlife. All right, make love. Get it over with. This is hell. My turn will come. But in addition to being a philosopher, playwright, novelist, and activist, Sartre was quite the lover. 
1929, he began an ongoing relationship with philosopher Simone de Beauvoir. But Sar also dated a ton of other ladies alongside de Beauvoir, including his young college students. Young enough, and often enough, that these days he probably wouldn't be teaching much. Then he met Wanda Kasakovich. Sartre had spent years trying to seduce this woman called Wanda, in fact. He, he had first fallen in love with her older sister called Olga. That's Andy Martin, a professor at Cambridge University. Olga was Simone de Beauvoir's 17-year-old student. De Beauvoir had sex with Olga, so Sartre tried to seduce Olga too. But when Olga rejected Sartre, he went after her sister, Wanda. Wanda turns up in, in Paris, and he falls for her. After a couple of years of courting, Sartre sealed the deal with Wanda. Then in 1943, Sartre introduced Wanda to his buddy, fellow philosopher, novelist, and playwright, Albert Camus. They met, and he had seduced her within about five minutes, if I remember. So that was a bit, you know, right in front of Sartre. She, she fell for Camus in a big way, and this did cause a certain amount of bitterness and resentment on, on Sartre's side, as he explained to, to Beauvoir in a letter to her. Sartre told de Beauvoir all about his other lovers in detailed letters. It was part of their open relationship deal. Martin says Camus and Sartre were both kind of playboys, but Camus was the hot one, considered the Bogart of his time, while Sartre kind of looked like an ogre. Sartre and Camus were hanging out in some left bank bar, and Sartre was going into his sort of would-be seduction routine, and Camus, who, who doesn't have a routine at all, says to him, oh, why are you trying so hard? And Sartre says back to him, well, have you had a look at this mug recently? I, my own face. Sartre and Camus fell out after Camus published a critique of totalitarianism, which Sartre took as a personal attack on his own Marxist beliefs. They never spoke again. His best-known one-liner, Sartre's phrase, is, is hell is other people, I think. One of the best <laughs> philosophical one-liners of the 20th century, possibly. After the war, Sartre delved deeper into politics. Sartre became more left-wing, I guess, and threw his lot into some extent with various kind of quasi-Marxist groups, was sympathetic towards the uh, Soviet Union. Sartre continued his political activism and writings throughout his life. He also had many more lovers, including mistress-turned-adopted daughter Arlette Al-Qaim. In 1975, at the age of 70, Sartre was asked how he'd like to be remembered. He replied, I would like people to remember the milieu or historical situation in which I lived, how I lived in it, in terms of all the aspirations which I tried to gather up within myself. Jean-Paul Sartre died in 1980 in his hometown of Paris. Six years later, his lifelong lover and friend, Simone de Beauvoir, was buried right beside him. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. You can listen to the rest of this program by purchasing it at iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.